Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the front line. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. I'm your host, Justin Lake, and we're going to have another exciting episode for you today. Today's guest is a ProSize Certified Change Manager and is currently the Senior Change Manager at Stanley Black & Decker. Please welcome Zach Jadamzik. Hello, Zach. Hey, Justin. How's it going? Good to see you. Very well. How did I do on your name? You did perfect. I'm, I'm working on pronunciations. One of my teammates told me that I wasn't doing a good job of even pronouncing his name. And so uh, I'm doing some more work on that. So I appreciate your coaching before the, uh, the conversation started here. Let's, uh, let's get right into it then. Tell me what your take is on what you see being the biggest challenge facing the deskless workforce today. So I'm going to split it into two for you, actually, because we have a couple of subsets of deskless workforce, right? We have those that are on the front line in our manufacturing facilities. And then obviously with COVID, we're doing a, re uh, a return to work um, activity in reviewing all of our workspaces for our non, what I would consider um, operators or where, what we say at Stanley Black & Decker, we have our makers and then everybody else, right? So we have a lot of makers that are out in the manufacturing world. Um, and I think for, for those, it's staying uh, safe, staying healthy first and foremost. Um, and then uh, communication and getting them to understand why we make the decisions that we're making, um, changing the things that we're changing and, you know, moving into the more digital forefront of technology. Right. And then we have these same types of things happening at our what I would call your typical office worker, which are also frontline workers. Mm -hmm. um, they're also now deskless, as you say. So yeah. uh, there's a couple of different fronts that we're playing on. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. You, you refer to many of the men and women that I might call frontline workers as makers. Talk, talk me through that a little bit more. Absolutely. So you can see behind my wall, uh, you know, we are for those who make the world. That's what we call those that are making our tools and working in our factories. And it's also what we call those out in the world building our buildings, right? Building bridges, all the infrastructure that's being worked on, things like that. They're all makers and they all require us to do our jobs so that those can make the world. Yeah, that's fantastic. I have uh, my share of Stanley Black & Decker tools in my uh, workshop and home that doesn't get nearly as much of my time as I'd like to, but it's still nice having all the uh, DeWalt tools out there. So well, we appreciate the support. <laughs> so um, you mentioned staying safe, healthy, and then you also talked about communication and, and communication comes up a, a lot on the podcast in terms of how we can do a better job of, of informing uh, people throughout the entire organization, but particularly some of the men and women on the front lines. Um, I, I know we're probably going to come back and, and talk a lot about this, you know, in the rest of the show, but is there anything that kind of stands out to you from a communication standpoint as something that's been a gap that you've identified and needing to close or something that you're doing today that you feel like is, is kind of noteworthy in that area? 
Um, for us, COVID was a large challenge, right? Um, how do we how do we communicate the changes if you can't be in the building? Um, and while we never shut down any of our, our factories or our plants, they were open 100% of the time, um, it was difficult to get that information to them, right, with uh, social distancing and being spread out and masks and, um, you know, just even talking to one another, loud machinery, and now you have a mask over your face, yeah. right? So, yeah. uh, you know, you used to be able to read lips and now you can't read lips. So it's not... When I say communication, I don't mean just the top down corporate into the BUs or, uh, you know, you know, the the signage, the digital signage that we put out there. I mean, just communicating in general was much, much more difficult to be able to hear and understand uh, direction and, and things like that. And we really had to leverage some technology to make that a little bit easier. OK, so I want to come back to that, um, particularly the the technology piece. Um, so let, let's table that for now. I, I'd like to give the audience and I'd like to hear a little bit more myself about uh, your background and, and kind of what's brought you to be in, in the role that you're in today. Yeah, I, had a, I think just like any other change manager, we have an odd path to where we're at, right? Nobody goes to college and they're like, I'm going to be a change manager when I grow up, right? It's a thing that we don't really say. So uh, for me, it was, I started out in the insurance industry um, as a claims adjuster, uh, you know, just handling minor accidents, uh, worked my way through that into eventually building systems and being a business systems analyst. So I flipped from, you know, doing the work uh, to helping build a new claim system. And um, I was tapped as a, a SME for that project. And I actually picked up IT pretty quickly, uh, picked up uh, writing requirements very quickly. So they just asked me to be part of the project team. And so that's how I ended up in the project world. That led me to project management, managing other teams for IT support. Um, I've done a whole gamut of other things, which has actually helped me get here because I speak a lot of different languages. I don't speak Spanish. I don't speak French. Um, but you mean I the language of IT and business. I IT, I speak finance. I can help walk through a PL and actually understand it. Things like that. All of those things are really, really important because we work with the breadth of the organization uh, from, from, again, back to marketing, to finance, to operations, to IT, to HR. Um, my particular role in my team, we support it all. So we need to have that the, those type of communication skills and those languages so that we can do the job. And that's yeah. how I ended up here, right? It's, a, it's an interesting mess. So what is it about the idea of change management and th that just kind of led you to, to want to focus your energy in that area, especially with such a broad background where you probably had a lot of options in terms of your career pathing? What led you into change management? So helping the people who use the tool, our goal is to be here for the customer. It's to be there for those who make the world in my current role. In my previous roles, it still was always about the customer, customer first, customer first, customer focused, customer centric, all of the corporate taglines that come along with, you know, all of those customer type things, right? However, those who need to serve the customer weren't really thought of when building, whether it's a new system, a process, program, or re reorganizing, you know, your whole organization. Um, and so it was really odd to me that, you know, I'm, I'm as, a, as, a, as a frontline worker or as a maker or as a person just answering the phone, nobody's really taken our opinion on what we needed, what we needed, right, to do our job to help the customer. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, we're, we're your first line of defense or first line of success with a customer. And we don't have the tools that we need because nobody really asked us. And I always found that really interesting. And so when I got asked a long time ago to be part of a project, I jumped on the chance. I was like, yes, 
I want to do that. I want to help fix everything. Like I want, I know how this should go. I know what the process should be. And that really served me well. And that's how I ended up, you know, getting on the project and doing more and more, but that's really what I, what I still hold dear to my heart, right? Like how do we make it better, faster, smarter? And now it's really just for our internal employees as well. Um, you know, when I took over a role in, uh, in an insurance company a while ago, um, it was really helping run an operations group, but it wasn't an operations group like manufacturing. It was an IT operations group for the platform that we just built, the new claim system. And our people need that system to work. They also need people that support them. So if that system goes down or they have a question, they have that information quickly and easily because your customer is going to be completely impacted if they don't have what they need right then and there. And so we didn't have a lot of that, right? We were just kind of building a system and throwing training at them and uh, throwing code over the wall, so to speak, to an operation support team. Um, and the people that were building the system weren't really taught. And so I built a, you know, a program. Uh, we called it transition readiness is actually what we called it. I didn't know it was change management at the time. Mm -hmm. We just called it transition readiness. Hey, we're going to transition this piece of code into this system. It's going to do this thing. Here are all the steps. And so we just created a checklist basically here are all the things you need to do as a project team before you can just throw code into production and that's really what started this whole thing for me then i started doing more research and i was like oh i'm not a genius i am not a genius this is a thing it's change management and yeah. that is what really led me down that path yeah as i've come to learn more about the profession i'm fascinated and and i really getting nostalgic i think back to projects that i've been a part of over the course of my career and i realized that we were dealing with change management all along. We just didn't necessarily use that terminology. And I would say sometimes, probably more often than I'd care to admit, we were dealing with change management as a reaction to solving problems rather than being proactive and thoughtful and strategic about it on the front, front end. Did, did you have any experiences like that before you were officially a change management professional in your current role today. Did you have any experiences where you were, well, it sounds like you were just describing one of those examples right now when you were on the, the project side before you were in change management. Are there other examples that made you say, hey, we've got to think of a different way of doing this? Justin, every single day, every single day, myself, my team and others are brought into a project that's been going on for a week, a month, a year. And then they're like, oh, we need that change management team over there, that, right? Yeah. We need some training and stuff. We need some communication and stuff, right? And that is one of the largest challenges that we have is we should be consulted as soon as you have an idea of a project. We can help you make sure that you're pointing in the right direction for a solution, right? We're not the solution, we're, we're not gonna provide a solution, right? But we can definitely help guide that will help or that won't help. Because those that are choosing it in the IT world don't always necessarily talk to those that are doing the work. Yeah, so, all right, so what you just said, it makes absolutely perfect sense. And it sounds so obvious. Why wouldn't this happen all the time? What do you think are the reasons that even in organizations with an OCM team or some type of structure around that, that those teams aren't necessarily engaged on projects? Is it just a bad habit thing? Are people just in a rut? Or, or is there actually change resistance to change leadership? It is... <laughs> I would say it's a combination of a lot of things. Um, and I'll try not to get too cute with it because I could, but it, it's not worth it. But it, one of the things is we're too big. 
all companies are just too big. They yep. have too much going on, right? Yeah. I think every corporate corporation has that. And I don't even think it matters. And I shouldn't even say too big. We just take on too much stuff. A lot of yeah. us do, right? Whether you're at Stanley, whether you're at another company, it's just, you're always trying to get things done. And you're trying to get it done fast. And people don't really think through those steps. They just, they go right to a solution. So it's not even about change management's getting missed. Sometimes even just talking to a business partner um, that, you know, another, another department is just missing a piece and they don't think about it because they're like, oh, problem A, solution B, straight line, what's the fastest way, right? Instead of what's the best way. And I think that's a lot of it. Um, part of it too is just lack of awareness or knowledge that a change management group exists at your company. Um, I yeah. talk to new people every single day. We are a company of, I think, around 60,000 right now, maybe 65,000. And there's no way to know every facet of every organization and the sub organizations within it. And I think it's just gets missed. So we do our best. So part of my role as a senior manager here is to make sure I'm getting the word out. And I talk to a lot of teams. I go to a lot of town halls. I go to a lot of leader meetings. And I just try to talk about change management and what it is and what we can do. The other piece that I think it's missed a lot too is um, when you look at an organization our size, right? We don't have the, the resources to have a change manager for every single project that's going to happen throughout the company. So a lot of our role is really about education and education of our leaders so that they have it built into them. That is our goal. That's what we try to do here at Stanley is emphasize the learning of our leaders. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It, as I hear you describe that scenario, I'm thinking about like a fast food order where somebody says like, do you want fries with that? Right. And it's like, Hey, I'm, I'm building out this project plan. Hey, do you want change management with that? You know, it's as if it's some type of like optional add on to a project. That's a really yeah. good descriptor. I hadn't, I hadn't heard that. And you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to borrow that if you don't mind. It's really yours, like, man. No royalties, like no royalties needed. So, so it kind of makes you wonder like under what circumstance would somebody say no, or to think that they didn't need it. Now I know that there are sometimes some you know, like cost allocation challenges and, and resourcing challenges that might cause, you know, some heartburn. Hey, we don't have enough money in the budget for that. It's the same thing that happens with training, right? Training gets demoted in, in the project budget because we're like, oh, well, all we have is enough money to actually build. We already had four change orders with the vendor. So now we don't have any money to train everybody, right? Uh, so I, I suspect change management kind of fits into that category sometimes. Is Do you see that happening? I would 100% agree with that. Um, I don't think that that is a driving factor or force here at Stanley, uh, yep. but I, I know for sure it happens at other companies. I talk to my peers a lot and it is, it is that way. Uh, what I would caution though is um, just because you have a product, if people don't want to use it and the people don't like it and they don't know how to use it or even know it exists, then you just spent you know, X amount of dollars on a thing they can't even use. So yeah. what did you really do? What did you really accomplish? Well, that's a really good point. And, and I think from some of the other guests, and I, I feel like this is coming out in some of the things that you've said, it, it really has to be not just, you know, two people, three people, 30 people that do this job, but it, it has to be something that permeates through the culture. And, and you talked about the leadership uh, development aspect. So let's, let's go back to that a little bit more, because I think that's something that it, it may be those, those same leaders, the uneducated of those leaders who say, yeah, I'm not going to take the fries with that. Um, how do you go through the process of, of educating them that this is an investment that will yield many multiples in return versus just some added cost or complexity or friction added to their project? 
Let's say it's a, it's a couple of things. Um, luckily for me, I didn't have to bear that cross of creating our organizational change management uh, group here at Stanley. Um, my my direct manager does that, um, and and I was really she created it from nothing, and it was birthed out of an actual finance project, right? So we were getting a new finance system. We had a vendor working on it. Uh, it wasn't going well. Um, and so she stepped up and said, you know what, I think I can do this piece of this work. And she did. And then it turned into, all right, this worked. We need more of this. This is good. This is what good looks like. We need more. And then we got more and then more. And as we've expanded throughout uh, the organization, we've really just permeated through all the business units. And it's been through good work. It hasn't been through showing stats and figures. And, and I appreciate ProSci and, and all the education they give me. And I love their the, the, the working knowledge that they have and all the studies. Those are all very, very helpful, especially for uh, new programs being started or a very re resistant leader. But the, for us, the proof is in the pudding. We get asked for help on a lot of things, a lot of new things every single day. And that's just the genuine good work that our team is doing. And I think that's, a, there's a couple of things in there. One, um, we're not always by the book. We're not always by the pro side process, right? We've taken the stance, look, we're not going to try to shove it down everybody's you know, throats, right? That is bad change management, first off. So why would we do change management that way, right? So let people kind of take in what they want and let them organically grow into understanding what change is and raising our hand and saying, Hey, we'll come talk at your town hall. We'll come do this. And, you know, we'll, we'll do this project. We'll walk you through it. And then what happens inevitably is we walk them through our process. We walk them through our, what our, what we typically would do. And they're like, man, we need this for that, that, and that. Well, that's fantastic. We have a whole selection of tools and templates for you here at Stanley Black and Decker as a leader you have access to. Here's where you go to do all these things. And anytime you need me, myself or my team is right here for you. And that has been the organic way we've grown it through the organization. What are some of the things that when you're educating folks in, in the way that you just described, what, what are some of the kind of high level concepts that you might try to educate them on to help raise their awareness of the, the, the change management process? The single one best tool that I hands down walk through every single leader, we're, we're currently doing it for a lot of large initiatives, kind of like not resetting, but level setting. Uh, you know, when you have multiple work streams within one large transformational initiative, you have some different leaders with different opinions. Um, but one of the things that we've been using is uh, it's called a case for change. It's describing what is going to change, why it's going to change. How's it going to impact your organization? And then lastly, and most importantly, how's it going to impact individuals? And the reason why it's interesting is all, it, it, this all seems common sense, but it's just not common practice, right? And it's getting those people to really think about, don't worry about a PowerPoint slide. I'm not asking you to build a pretty PowerPoint to go get budget and to get resource and all of this. No, really, what is actually changing? What are you going from and what are you going to? And doing that mental exercise with them really breaks them out of their shell because again, I don't want corporate speak. I don't want ROI and all these things in what you're actually doing. No, really, what is going to happen? They're going to have this today. They're not going to have that tomorrow. Okay, cool. Now we can go to the next step on why. And then they give you the big PowerPoint pretty well because of this and that and the external blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. 
why now? Why are you doing it to this group of people? Break it down because what happens then once you finish your case for change, all that turns into your talking points. And now your communication is already built. The way I describe change management and the way we work here at Stanley is honestly, it's like algebra, right? It's like math. You got your, you got your addition and subtraction. That's where you start. And you move up to your division and multiplication and your square right. roots and you just keep moving forward. And all of those things help build. But it's really interesting, starting with that case for change really gets a person who thinks they know, who thinks they know what they're doing and why they're doing it. The, those wheels start turning and then their light bulb goes off of, oh, wait. And one of two things is going to happen. Either, yep, they're going to go through the process and great, now we have our talking points. Now we can define our stakeholder analysis and blah, blah, blah. Or they're going to be like, wait, does this even make sense to do? Which I've had happen. They're like, wait, what? Hang, hang on time out. Maybe this isn't the right solution because you'll get to, well, this is what we're changing. Well, now it doesn't match the why. And now wait, are we even talking about the right group here? That happens. And, and it's not bad. That's the other thing. It's not a bad thing that we, we no. stop ourselves short. So we don't waste resource and time and money. Right. I actually think that's a fantastic example. I think there are certain cases where it doesn't make sense. And it, it sometimes takes some evolution going through that exercise of, you know, kind of building out all the building blocks of that initiative to come to a point where you realize that, you know what, the best thing that we can do for ourselves would be to pull the plug on this thing, right? Maybe the direction that we've taken or the budget that we've allocated or the outcomes that we were expecting are no longer what we believe them to be six, 12 or 24 months ago. And the best thing that we can do is actually tap the brakes and maybe reconsider or maybe, you know, put the whole thing away. I, I think that's actually a really, really good point. And if you have a mechanism to help um, identify that, then uh, that's awesome. And in, in the majority of the cases where the change does continue to move forward, you've got a little bit more structure around that. I, I have not heard that that term, like a, a case for change. Does that come from ProSci or another framework? Or is that something that you guys put together as a tool internally? Oh man, you're gonna dig back into my brain on whether I, I, you know what? That's a great, that's a great question. I don't have an answer. You know to what? I say, problem. I say that we just tell the audience that you made it up, and unless somebody comes back with some kind of trademark infringement, then we're gonna give you credit for it. How's that sound? I don't know if I'm comfortable with that, but okay. <laughs> like, we 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 use the term case for change. I I believe that it is a true change management concept. I don't know if yeah. it was by Cotter. Okay, yeah. ProSci, um, but yes, we, we do. We, we, that is the, that's the methodology. That okay. Then, then scratch my suggestion of attribution and uh, I appreciate it. I just, I don't like taking things that I know aren't <laughs> mine, man. I, uh, uh, that's another thing. Again, a lot of what we do, and I do want to put this out there. A lot of what we do as change managers, it is all just common sense, not common practice. I, I have created nothing, nothing new, my friends, nothing new. I actually, I wrote that quote down. It's common sense, but not common practice. I, I think that should be really the overarching theme of frontline innovators because in this, to, to our audience and former guests, this is not to take away from any of the innovative things that you know you all have done. But the reality is a lot of this is common sense, but it takes because it's not a normal part of the culture in many cases, because it's not part of our normal practices, it is definitely not part of common practice. And so really the innovation is thinking about how to take these common sense ideas and get them adopted 
right? Get, get engagement about engagement, right? How do you change everyone's thinking about looking at change management as, as something that you make a relatively small investment and get outsized returns in the long run just by taking a, a, you know, a quick pause, thinking about things a little bit more strategically, and then being able to execute more effectively down the road. So it is absolutely common sense, not common practice. And um, I, I hope some people can kind of go buck the trend inside their organizations to make it so. No, I appreciate that. And I, I think there's a couple of points that, that you just talked about that I, I think are really, really good. Um, when, you know, when you think about the common sense, not common practice and like what, what myself and my team bring, we just bring a different lens. We just bring a different perspective. Right. When you're putting right. in a new piece of software, mm -hmm. you have IT people putting in an IT software. Great right. IT. I'm sure you selected the right product because you probably did a bunch of due diligence. You know, technically how to get it actually implemented and over the wall and into, you know, production environment. And you probably know how to write some type of training document to technically walk through the thing, right? Yeah, but if you don't partner with the people that are gonna use it and see it in practicality, then is that really real? And, and then the, you no longer have common sense, right? Think about um, your, your finance department. They're gonna put in a, a new process, right? We have a new closing process. And while I love our finance professionals, usually the folks that need a new closing process are those sitting at the top not the ones gathering all the data, putting all the spreadsheets together, building all the PowerPoints. And what's that look like? You know, if you want a new report, what does that actually mean? Um, we have a lot of uh, technology leveraged in, in um, digital or digitizing our, a lot of our reporting, right? Um, and I'll, I'll keep it agnostic, right? We have all the things, right? All the tools to make that happen. And it's one of those things where and a leader will say, yeah, I want that, that report. Okay, but do you know what that means when what has to happen to make all that happen? It's not like a click of a button. And so you have that problem. Then we have our process engineering team, which is great. And they're doing a lot of lean work in a lot of our factories. And they're on the floor and they're counting widgets and dollars and time and da 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 But what about the person that's just standing there that's going to do this role that's just saying, hey, I'm a human and I need to move this thing to that thing, right? We just come with a different lens. And that's it. And that's what you just said is the perfect reason why we walk through that case for change. So those folks that don't have that lens can put that hat on and say, oh, wait, how is that really going to impact an individual? Ooh, is that really going to be worth it? Is that what we should do? And that also ties back into what we were talking about earlier, why you should bring change management in sooner rather than later. You might find out this isn't a thing we should even be doing. Yeah. I think that's, um, those are all really Good words of wisdom. I think uh, a lot of people can learn from. You, know, you, you talked earlier in the beginning that you you speak different languages, and it's it's come up on the show over time now about how change management folks are kind of sitting in the middle as almost translators. Hmm. And you didn't use that term, but I, I feel like I was hearing the same thing. Your ability to speak multiple languages and communicate to the IT teams the way that they know how to speak and the way that they want to be spoken to and in a way that makes sense to them is not necessarily the same language that we should be using with the L&D team or the operations folks or, or ultimately the end users who don't care about any of those other things. And they just want to know some of the other things you talked about, which is like, how does this impact my job? And, and I love that the, the case for change piece, which is just like, here's what it looks like now. Here's what it's going to look like going forward. Here's what you need to know. It's, it's kind of elegant in its simplicity. But I think it really speaks to recognizing that um, we're all humans with different backgrounds and, and to bring some of that empathy into this conversation so that it's not just about the technology. I, I guess that's the thing that it kind of comes up on this show all the time, too, is 
the failure of technology solutions is rarely, rarely about the technology failing. Yeah. It's usually about the humans not interacting with the technology the way that they thought it was supposed to be. And that is solvable often through a more strategic change management plan. I 100% agree with that. And you struck something that was interesting to me is a lot of, a lot of folks, when a new technology project is being introduced, they thought they were solving the right problem, right? Mm -hmm. They thought they knew the solution, but unless you engage those that are actually doing the work, like the daily work you're trying to improve, yeah. you, you might just be giving them something they're never going to use, which we've, we've done that. It, it's happened before, um, not just here at Stanley, but at my other, you know, at other places I've, I've been in my past. And, and it's because you jump to the solution before you actually really define the problem and the use case on why you're doing it. Yeah. Let's talk about that some more. Cause I, I've been thinking about this actually quite a bit lately. I'm, I'm glad you raised that point. I, I think there are some times when we communicate the change in technology as if we're, we're saying, particularly with the men and women on the front lines, okay, which is our, you know, our core uh, target uh, constituency here, right? So we're saying to them, hey, this is going to make your job easier. And sometimes it's actually not really true. Sometimes we actually could be adding complexity to their job, but there's still a reason to do it. And I think we do a crappy job or at least I've witnessed mostly crappy jobs <laughs> done in terms of communicating that. So an example might be, I may be asking a field service technician to do three, four, five more steps than they otherwise have to do. I'm actually not making their job more efficient at all. And I'm, I know that I'm not making their job efficient at all. But rather than being transparent about that and explaining why it impacts things positively down the road. An example might be, I'm asking you to track the parts that you're putting into this work order with more detail and more specificity because it will allow us down the road for the, the guys that manage the warehouse to make sure that we have replacement parts available in the future. So it actually might make their job actually a little bit slower. They might have to take on three or four more steps, but there's an overarching business objective that is accomplished through that step. Do you think it's fair for me to say we, we don't always communicate that super well? 100%. And I actually have a, 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 an example of it. Like, All right. right tell me. Tell me. Like, yeah. As you were talking, I was like, yeah, we, you know, we do it more often. Not more often than not. That's probably a bad thing to say. It happens often. Um, but you're correct in the fact that perfect example for us. Uh, we were, I was in a plant uh, in Ohio. Um, there was this shrink wrap machine and it was just not in a good spot. It wasn't in a very safe spot. Um, and our safety committee was like, yeah, we, we really need to move this. And so we moved it. It made it more difficult for those who needed to use the machine because they now have to take a forklift. They have to now drive around a pole and yes. you know, squeeze in and do it here instead of, you know, where it was easy access there, there. Right. And nobody really told them. And I, I, I wasn't really part of the, the plan of the program. I was there for a whole nother ancillary reason, which is what was funny about the whole thing. The guy comes in and he was like, Hey, did you move the thing on the floor to another manager? And he's like, yeah, safety wanted to move it. Well, could you have at least told us when or why or how now I got these people and I, I got a backup and we didn't plan for it and so on and so forth. And so after the person left, we were just having a quick conversation. I was like, yeah, that's, that's a really good example of bad change management. And that's one of the reasons right. why I'm here visiting. Uh, we need to talk about these things. You can't just change something. Well, yeah, it was the right thing to do. Again, health and safety of our employees is number one every single day, 
365 days a year, but you have to tell them that you have to tell them we did it for your health and safety because it was just in a bad spot. I, I it's, and so that is a perfect example. And how many times, I mean, that was, that story is not necessarily about a new piece of technology with the, the shrink wrap mechanism and stuff like that, but it's, it, I think we do the same things on the technology front and it doesn't mean that they're bad ideas in most cases. I mean, I've been a part of the, the project planning of a lot of those, you know, projects. I know the ideas have merit for the business. There is a downstream implication that is always positive when we're working up this initiative, but I do think that there are users that can be affected downstream by that for whom it may not necessarily be positive. That's okay too. It may be part of their job and we may be able to give them the bigger picture about why this is so important. Um, you know, in, in the case of the field service uh, techs, I am explaining an actual example of a conversation that came up and, and the advantage to the tech is that they get to complete more work orders because if they're documenting those parts better today, they're making a small investment today, but then their truck is loaded with the proper replenishment tomorrow so that they get to do more work orders on a single trip the next day. But you have to, you kind of have to make a leap in that example that I'm, I'm making, I'm taking five extra minutes to document, you know, parts and, and materials and stuff today. It feels like it's just a net draw on my time. And it is, but tomorrow it actually saves me from making two trips when I could have only made one. And, uh, but we've, we've got to be able to tell that whole story or otherwise it feels like, man, we're just messing with people. We're just moving their cheese just for the sake of it. To that point, we always need, I always tell our leaders to explain the with them. What's in it for me. Yeah. Tell yeah. Those people what the with them is, but you can't just stop there. Right. Because sometimes the people you're talking to that with them really isn't for them. Right. right. It's for the company. That's why when we look at the, when we look at what's this mean for the organization and what's this mean for the individual, that's why they're in two separate boxes in the case for change. They're yeah. not the same thing. And then even more so when you're talking about what's it mean for the organization, sometimes, especially when you're talking about a large transformation, I have to get a leader to break it down. What's it mean for Stanley Black and Decker as an organization? What's it mean for, uh, you know, our tools and storage group. And then again, what's it mean below that, right? Because all of those things layer and wrap up and the with them isn't the same for everybody. And so you yeah. can't just say, oh, I got it. It's this. Well, really, what is it? And then again, going through that case, I know I keep bringing it back to that case for change, but that really is the, it, it is the, the, the beginning of understanding of what you're actually doing. Yeah. You think there's like a, any type of debit and credit system in place where when we're talking about who all the people that are affected, do you think the frontline workers sometimes might come back and say, I feel like I'm always on the receiving end and, and there's nothing in it for me? You know, that's a really good point. We, you know, this actually did just come up not too long ago because we are making a lot of changes, um, whether that's organizationally or on the plant where, you know, we're trying to digitize our plants and bring them up to speed and everything like that. And yeah, um, I think that unfortunately, Hmm. I want to be careful with my words here because I feel like that it's always not always going to be that way, but they're always going to feel that way because they are the ones on the, they're called frontline workers. They're, for right. us, they're our makers. They're the ones actually doing the work and making yeah. the tools. So unfortunately, I, I think they're always going to get the majority of that change. I don't believe that they're always going to get the majority of it doesn't actually help me. It only helps corporate. Because yeah. I, I would vehemently disagree with that statement. So I yeah. think it's two statements for me. I think we have to be sensitive to that. I, I agree with you completely. I, I think they are on the receiving end of that a, a lot of times. And it may just be a part of their job. You're, you're right about that. But I think we need to do 
a better job of understanding that, especially as you and other change management professionals have helped me understand the, the concept of like change saturation, just the, the overall change capacity and how much people can, can withstand. We are expecting a tremendous amount of these men and women. And, you know, the, the, COVID and here in terms, I make fun of it all the time in the show, but this idea of Zoom fatigue, we're on a Zoom session right now. I don't feel fatigued, by the way. Um, but, you know, the, the knowledge workers that are working in a comfortable air-conditioned office or now have been relegated to their home office, they, they've had a very different experience in a lot of this, right? And so the men and women on the front lines are definitely getting a, a whole lot of change. And they've had to keep some things like driving to the office and still doing, or not necessarily to an office, but to a facility. Um, They've had to keep a lot of those things in place. And then meanwhile, they've had to absorb a lot of change at the same time. So I I guess to me, it it just boils down to empathy and and awareness of recognizing that uh, a lot of the changes that we've experienced collectively as a society over the last two years haven't all necessarily been the same. And so if we're going to ask those folks to you know, be on the receiving end of more digital transformation initiatives and, and things like that, that we just need to do it eyes wide open and just be respectful that they're, they're dealing with a lot and they haven't been able to, you know, work from their kitchen table. I think there's two points that I, I would, I definitely want to talk about now that you brought that up. I, I really am kind of excited, not excited about these two topics, but there are two yeah. things that are really um, hot topics for, for me and right. where my focus is right now. So um, some of it's some of it's theory and some of it's not, but it some but we'll go through it, right? You have your normal change curve, right? Where you're like, okay, we're gonna change. I don't want to change, and then you kind of start learning about it, and you're like, ah, okay, and then you move on. You're like, all right, I accept it. Okay, you got me. You gave me my knowledge. I know how to do it. Okay, now I'm doing it, right? It's a change curve. The thing is, everybody, uh, the way we describe it in our profession uh, is always okay you're going to go through this change curve and then stop. There's no stop. There never will be stop. Mm-hmm. Everything is ever changing. It's always a circle. It's a, there is no change circle, right? But there is a curve, but then there's another curve and then there's another curve and then it's just going to be cyclical. And it's going to be that way. If you work for any company, that's how it's going to be. Even if you own your own company, that's how it's going to be. That's just life. It's the circle of life, right? So when we say these, you know, when we go out and talk about change curve, we really need to start giving our people better tools to just handle and work with change because it's ever constant, right? It's ever constant change. So that's another piece and focus of my team is providing that personal and professional resiliency. What can I do to make my day better? What can I do to make my, my, you know, my peers day better? What can I do? Do I mental breaks for myself? How do I handle all of this change that's going to happen? Right? because it's ever constant. It's always going to change. So we always talk about this change curve and I'll be in this happy place. Well, you're going to get me to my happy place as an end user for this one thing, but then there's this other thing that's now new. And now you got to get me to that happy place. And then another thing, right? And it's just ever continuous. And then the other thing that I've been uh, putting a lot of thought into as well, and it builds into the same concept of change is not only never going to stop, it's only getting faster. Right. So think about the on demand experience that you have as an adult and think about what your children have. Right. So I have an eight year old, but he'll be eight in a week next week. <clears throat> what he wants, he can get instantly. Right. Instantly. When I when I can get what I want on Netflix and YouTube and before all that was around, I still could probably get kind of what I want. Right. 
my child, now we're, uh, we're in a different socioeconomic scale, so let's keep that in mind. But in general, we live in a nice suburb where most of the kids around here can have just about anything they want on the spot. Think about adults now. How often do you make food or order it through DoorDash or Uber Eats? You can get whatever you want. We have a, a, a local company here called Cluster Truck. I don't get paid for them, not an ad for them, but they're awesome. And you know what's great about them is they have these kitchens around the city and you can get whatever you want. So if he wants pizza and they want tacos and I want Chinese, I can have it delivered within seven minutes to my home. It's insane. That's insane. So where I'm going with all of this is think about this. You have those that are on the front line now that are an older generation. Our makers are, are getting a little bit older. We know this. Their appetite for change wasn't really there because change was a lot slower. Middle, say we're in our 20s, 26, right? 25, 26. They're used to change. They're used to getting what they want quickly. And that's okay because they're a little bit better at it because it's what they want, right? They're getting what they want. Now think about my eight-year-old. Now let's talk about the expectation of change and what I want. You have a 20 something who they're gonna expect things, right? We talk about them all the time. I want a better salary. I wanna be promoted faster, da, 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 da. If you think that is scary, when my eight-year-old is in his twenties, what's that look like? Can we as a company change fast enough? Can I even do my job to provide change management for that person? I don't know the answer to that. And that's something that I'm focusing on and I'm trying to do some research on because that is where we need to be as leaders of change. I need to understand in 10, 20 years, that eight-year-old who can get any food, any game, anything they want on demand, how do I get them to change to what we need them to do? And how do I do it fast enough? As you said earlier, and as we talked about, it's hard enough for me to just get invited to the kickoff call. How do I get, how do I, I am very certain that, uh, well, maybe it's a hypothesis. I shouldn't say very certain, but my hypothesis is that my eight-year-old, when he is in his twenties, he's going to often just go do, he's just going to go do whatever that thing is because that's what he does now and nobody can stop him. Yeah. And this is a really, really good point. <clears throat> and the, the things that happen in our consumer lives affect how we think about what's possible in our work lives, right? And when we're in massive organizations like the one you're in today, and they just don't seem to move that well, I, I think you're absolutely right. It, you know, it, I shouldn't say that they don't move well. They, they, they aren't as nimble as what some of the services that we have available to us in the consumer space is really what I meant to say by that. And so, you know, I love the example of, you know, food delivery and, and all of the other things that we can have on demand. And then we talk about transferring inventory, <laughs> you know, in a manufacturing environment from the warehouse into the field service truck. And it seems like it's an act of Congress to make that stuff happen. Right. Crazy. Right? And, and, and the question is why, why does it have to be that way? And I think, I think I, I have some feelings on this and, and we've talked about some of these things on the show from a few different angles, but I think one of it is that we, you know, those consumer product companies place customer experience as like the number one priority for everything that they do. So how can we create a customer experience that is so appetizing that people will want to continue to come back for more? And then we come into our work lives and we basically build to like the lowest thing that we can get away with, right? We, we don't put employee experience 
on at the same level of priority. We, we put the priority in other things like inventory tracking, like what we were talking about before with the field service technicians. That's yeah. probably initiative from the COO, the CFO, somebody else in the organization, warehouse management. They're not thinking of the field service tech. They're thinking of other operational efficiency. And then it's like, well, what's the minimum employee experience that we can deliver to that field service tech to get him or her to actually use the technology? And so it really flips things upside down. And we, I do think that there's a, that the gap may actually be widening because our consumer experiences are improving at such an accelerated pace, but our work experiences aren't. And we have to figure out how to close that gap. They're located. So for me, definition of where where they're located within the company, right? When I think about organizational change and where it should sit in the company. And I'm not saying as my department should sit in HR or sit in a corporate or sit in BU. But what I will say though is um, when you talk about those experiential things for uh, for a, a maker, they're like, oh, that's HR. We'll, we'll get them buttons. We'll give them hats. We'll get them pins. Make sure that their benefits package is better. And the piece that is lacking is that because those that are in charge of the makers and what they actually need to do day to day functionally, oh, HR will take care of that. No, no, no. We need to educate our leaders that are managing directly one-on-one managing over the top. Yeah. This is an employee experience. And I think that's a whole other topic, right? That's a whole other conversation we can have. Uh, But yeah, I do believe that that is uh, just a misplaced thought that it just sticks with HR, right? It's fluffy bunny things and it's not, and it shouldn't be. Um, look at look at the way, when you think about a, an employee experience, right? Look at Google, look at salesforce.com. Free food, free this, do this, do that, right? Now I'll say there's, they have the same, not the same burnout rate. They have the same issues with burnout rate. They have the same issues with turnover and attrition. And I don't like this and that and the other, but think about the employee experience they've curated though right? The talent that they're getting. It's completely different, but those aren't really owned by HR. I don't think I have friends that work at both. It's just part of their culture. Right. Right. Nobody said, Hey, HR, make sure all the food's ordered for the breakfast for the kids. Right. Nobody did that. It's just part of their culture. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that I, we are trying to instill in those leaders for our makers of like, no, it's not HR's job. It's, it's also your job. Yeah. Well, I think another thing that comes to mind as we're talking about this is that in those consumer experiences, the motivation is repeat customers where you don't have a captive audience, right? You have to earn the audience back every single day. We don't feel that same obligation with our internal employees, right? It's like, they're going to show up for work. We've got the audience, right? But DoorDash has to work. Every single transaction that you have with DoorDash is designed to make sure that you come back to DoorDash within, you know, 3.4 days or whatever their statistic is, you know, they're driving toward whatever metric. And we don't have that same obligation at work because we know they're still going to show up or we hope that they're still going to show up. We used to think that they were going to show up reliably. And and now with the great resignation, I, I actually think it forces the conversation a little bit to say, hey, you know, what are some of the things that are frustrating? Why are some people not coming back? Why do we have attrition rates approaching 50% in certain industries and in some cases even more? And I, uh, my hope from this is that if there's a silver lining to this great resignation and some of the rethinking that's happening is to put a focus back and say, what are some of those things that are happening with our employee experiences that may be driving people away or at least not you know, keeping people here? And what can we do to, to improve that? We have to stop looking at improving an employee experience as just 
an incremental cost. And actually the same way that a consumer company would look at it is, is to say it's an incremental investment. And in the long run, there are payoffs both for the employee and ultimately for the productivity and retention and all those other things. Couldn't have said it better than myself. So yeah, yeah, that's, I, I believe in that. I believe in everything that you just said as well. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's an interesting time. I'm, I'm curious to see how things shake out. Um, you know, most of the, the folks that we have on the show, like you work for, you know, pretty massive organizations who are dealing with a lot of these, you know, very macro trends right now. And um, I hope if frontline innovators can have any little dent of an impact, I hope we can, can help to propagate the idea that employee experience, particularly with the men and women on the front lines should not just be an afterthought. It's something that we need to think about. And, and I'm going to go back and I'm going to steal your quote. Um, which is just that just because it's, it's common sense doesn't mean that it's common practice. And so it's, there's an opportunity there probably with some low hanging fruit to take things that really are common sense, don't necessarily require significant investments, but do just require us to, to be deliberate and intentional and, and make sure that we're, we're implementing those things and creating common practices. Agreed. And I think one of the things that we are doing, actually, I know one of the things that we're doing, and, and I know we were going to talk about it, uh, was the technology that we're leveraging inside of our factories to educate our employees, right? And, and that's a big step for us. Um, it, I wouldn't say it's super new, uh, but it is something that we are starting to just really go after, um, which is, you know, providing that type of training on the floor while people are doing it. Instead of doing it in a classroom, like let's do it here, let's do it now, let's give them a tablet. Oh yeah, let's give them a tablet that's programmed. Step by, you don't know, this is your first day on the job, you don't know how to use this machine. Here's a tablet, it's a program called DeepHow. You go into it and it'll tell you step-by-step step how to use the machine, how to do whatever. It translates into multiple different languages real quick and easy. And that's really helpful to our people. And it's not just a training mechanism, right? It's, hey, it could be this machine was down and here's what I did to fix it today. This is what broke. And then that's captured, right? So if that happens again, someone will be like, oh man, it happened again. What, what did he do again? Oh, play, got it. Now I can fix it again and up and, and up and going, right? That's a good employee experience, I think, because when, when you're standing there on, on, on a line and you're in the line stops and you're just standing there looking around, we want to empower our, our makers to not just stand and wait for the supervisor or wait for the mechanic or whoever, right? Don't wait. Let's see if we can give you the tools. And then don't they feel better about themselves? Because they were like, oh, I fixed this today. I fixed it myself and I'm back up and running. I'm now meeting my numbers that we were wanting to meet because it's a goal of mine too. It's not just a corporate number to meet my numbers. It's I personally hopefully want to meet my numbers too, right? And so yes. leveraging that type of technology where they can on the fly either know how to fix something or, hey, these are the steps I did to fix it this time. Cool, right? Leveraging those types of technology and then giving people a path to that learning environment. So I, I think those are one of the big things that we're doing for our employees from an employee experience. That's ultimate empowerment for the men and women on the front lines. And, and that's, that's awesome. And, and that's using technology as like a really long lever to, to really help, um, you know, bring that stuff right to them when and where they need it. Right. That, that to me is the, the most important part. And I think something that's left out with our hyper-focus on, on frontline folks that they, you know, making information available isn't necessarily the same as delivering it to them when and where they need it. And that gap can often be big. And the example that you just provided is a, is a perfect way to fill that gap, to, to really bring it to them right where they can take, 
you know, action on the information that they have right at their fingertips. That's awesome. Yeah. It's one of the things we're trying, we're trying out. Seems to be yeah. working well. That's awesome. Well, man, I need to uh, to wrap this up. We've actually gone a little bit over, but the uh, the conversation was really good. Thank you so much for taking time today. Uh, it's really been a pleasure getting to know you and uh, and hearing your story. And I'm looking forward to uh, sharing it with the rest of our audience. I thank you very much. Um, I appreciate it. I've, I've listened to a few of your podcasts. I really enjoy what's going on and, and what uh, other companies are doing is really helpful for me not to take their ideas, but to mold them and, and use them, right? I, I, I'm not the smartest person in the world and I hope not, right? That's why I have a team of people that help me. That's why we're an organization of so many. Um, and, and so things like you, that you're doing, I actually appreciate, right? It yeah. takes a lot of it takes a lot of guts and time and effort to be like, you know what, I'm going to start a podcast, right? Like that's not, that's not something everybody, they always talk about it or people think about doing it. You're actually doing it. And I congratulate you for that, sir. Well, well, thank you very much. I, I heard a statistic that was pretty motivating. I might have shared this with you when we when we first met, but uh, I heard that the average podcast only completes seven episodes. So, um, so we immediately went and signed up with our partner who helps us uh, produce this show, and we signed up for 104 episodes, uh, two a week for 52 weeks straight. And we said, "I'm not going to become another statistic. We're going to see this thing through to at least 104 episodes." So I think um, as of yesterday, I think we dropped uh, the 57th episode or something like that. We're about halfway through that journey. And uh, so, so far, it's feeling pretty good. It, it does take a lot of time and, and energy to, to put into it, but it's something that we're really enjoying. We're building a community around this conversation, and uh, we're going to welcome you into the Frontline Innovators Council after today and, and keep that conversation going. And uh, so it's, it's really kind of taken on a life of its own, and it's something I'm, I'm very proud of and proud to have been uh, a part of and looking forward to keep, keeping the conversation going with you. Absolutely. Feel free to keep in contact. We'd love to have more. Enjoy the rest good. of your day. All right, man. We're going to wrap it up there. I hope uh, the audience has found this conversation as enjoyable as I have. And if so, please share and rate the podcast. Five-star ratings help ensure that it gets promoted to other professionals like you that are innovating on the front lines. Reminder that this podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the mobile digital adoption platform for deskless and frontline workers. Visit the website at skillful.com. That's S-K-Y-L-L-F-U-L.com. And if you or someone you know is out there innovating on the front lines, we'd love to hear about it. Please reach out to me on LinkedIn and share your story. And we'd love to get you on one of the next episodes. Zach, thanks again for your time today. Thank you. Have a great one. All right. 